You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, appreciate you guys being part of the program. This week's guest is one of a lifetime of service story, but his beginning was in the military as a West Point graduate and serving over in Germany. And after his military career, he has gone on to work for some of the most incredible organizations, including the Arthur Blank Family Foundation, where he is now the CEO. You actually are our first CEO on the podcast, and it is Steve Cannon joining the program. Steve, welcome. Thank you for being here. Mark, great to be here. Well, it's interesting, you know, what you do in your post-military career is something that I think a lot of people are interested to hear because it's so diverse and, again, not many people achieve the level of CEO of any corporation, so that's in and of itself an achievement, but, you know, I, I think that the way you got here is, is incredible as well because the path that you take is unconventional and it's different and I think it's one that our listeners are going to benefit from, but first tell us how you got into the military and, you know, why West Point and all that? Well, it's funny. Um, you know, as you look back, um, things sort of line up, but look at, looking forward, uh, a very unpredictable path. When I was uh, getting out of college, I went to regular regular college first. I didn't go right into West Point. I don't, oh, come really? from, I don't come from a military family, so I wasn't predestined to go to West Point. In fact, I lived maybe 45 miles from West Point, and it wasn't even on my radar screen when I graduated from high school. Went off to William & Mary uh, on a wrestling scholarship, uh, and that, that, that didn't work. You uh, had, a, had a funny year there, and it just wasn't the right fit for me. So I ended up going from, from William & Mary to Rutgers, which was the state school, and that was, that was kind of a stopover for me. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to be where I was going to end up, but I, I transitioned there. So I spent a year there, and then as I was doing that, my brother, younger brother, who I, was, who I wrestled with, very close with, uh, who also won a, was on a wrestling scholarship to Syracuse, that didn't work for him. And he ended up at West Point. So the, and, and the funny story is the wrestling coach that recruited me at William & Mary ended up leaving, going to West Point, grabbing my brother. And by him grabbing my brother, that's what got me interested in. And so this circuitous path that started with a wrestling coach that recruited me to one place and then he left me dry there turns out to have opened a door to West Point that changed my entire life trajectory, career tra trajectory. So f funny kind of... Um, unexpected path into West Point. When you get to West Point, though, like, what's your mindset? Are you like, I'm out of my element here, I don't belong here, or did it just naturally fit for you? I, West Point w was, for me, a, a supreme challenge, and I saw what my brother was doing, and it captivated my imagination. He was... He was firing tanks at Fort Knox. He was rappelling down cliffs. He was out in the woods doing crazy, crazy things. So even though military wasn't part of my background, didn't have very many family members or role models that I could point to, suddenly my younger brother is at West Point coming back with these amazing stories about beast barracks and some hazing stories and just funny, made me laugh. It just intrigued me. And, and I kind of weighed that against my, my experience. And I felt like the college experience for me was fun, but it wasn't all that challenging. And I'm and I'm a guy that leans into challenge. So I looked at that and I said, "Epic adventure uh, that opens up kind of 
service to country, but then being stationed around the globe. Suddenly I weighed that against being in a fraternity and, and, and that seemed like a small thing to do. So, uh, so I ended up deciding to, to go that route, applied to West Point, And I ended up being at West Point with my, with my brother, Mark, um, who was my best friend at West Point while we were there and ended up being in the same company. So I had a, I had a friend, I had a, training buddy on, on the wrestling mats, and I had a mutual support system so that as we both went through the trials and tribulations at West Point, and there were many, and you mm-hmm. hit, the, and you hit yeah. these low points, and you need to lean on your buddies and your friends in order to just make it through, I had a, I had a brother there, so that made it particularly um, you know, impactful for me. When you look back at your time at West Point, I ask this all at West Point guys, because I'm an ROTC guy. So for me, like I enjoyed college, you know, and I always looked at West Point as like, well, I'm, I'm going to get the same paycheck the day I get a commission that you are. So when you look back on it, you know, what stands out to you as the memorable part, or what do you take from West Point now that you kind of still apply today? Uh, what what captivated me uh, outside of the adventure that my brother came back with and the tales that he told that he told was to be connected to something that was so organic to the American experience, founded in 1802. Some of the greatest leaders that have led this country through its toughest and darkest times have come from West Point. One of the one of the posters, and I'm a, I'm a marketing guy, that's my background, and, and, and this for me was maybe one of the most impactful posters, and, it, and it, the title of the poster was, Much of the t- History We Teach Was Made by the People We Taught. And it had... It had Ulysses Grant, it had Eisenhower, it had, uh, it had Bradley, and it had uh, uh, Robert E. Lee were, were pictured on the, uh, on the poster. And, and, and that grabbed me too, to, to feel like I would be connected. You know, and they call it the long gray line. You're connected through a common set of experiences, duty, honor, country, service to country, built on a model all about leadership and being really the spiritual core of, of the officer uh, and the army. All of that was the experience that I was signing on for and buying into, and and honestly, it's something that's never that's never left. It sounds a little corny, uh, but uh, for all of us that have gone through that shared experience, and all we wanted to do was graduate when we were getting through it. But as you look back on the things that you took away, um, they all become more important in the rearview mirror, and you realize, wow, that's who I am. And that part, that four years that I spent there, the bonds that I made there, the leadership lessons that, that were, the seeds that were planted there, they've driven me since I left that institution in, in 1986. Well, and that's the reason I asked that question of all the West Point cadets is because they seem to echo that same sentiment. I mean, you know, I, I look back on my four years in college. As my four years in college, ROTC was kind of an ancillary thing. And, and, and the byproduct of it was a commission that, you know, I, I have now served for a long time. But, you know, I look at college just as the generic experience of college and ROTC was mixed in there. I think West Point cadets kind of look at it the other way around that it's West Point and college is the the byproduct of being at West Point. That's exactly right. You kind of carry that with you. I got a I got a bachelor of science in economics, but I, I but I went to West Point right. and I had a West Point experience that is one hundred percent unique from all the other college experiences there, and just the level of again the level of challenge they everything that they did there was designed to throw more at you than you could possibly handle, and you had to learn to just uh, prioritize. Uh, adapt, overcome, and, and and all of those lessons that I learned that were planted, uh, uh, you realize I've been living with them ever since. So as, as you learn to get comfortable 
in uncomfortable situations, you just naturally prioritize things. It's not like, okay, let's stop and prioritize. These things happen more naturally. And I've just found that the skill sets that, that, that were there, not the, not the scholastic skill sets, but the skill sets of leadership and adaptation and prioritization, all those things have, have been the most important byproducts of that experience. So you said it was 1986 when you graduated. Okay. Now what branch did you end up going into? I was a field artillery officer. Okay. Was that by choice or was that one, is that what you wanted to do or that's kind of how they handed it to you? No, no, I was, uh, I, I was near the top of my class. So I got to choose. It was, everything was, everything got ranked at West Point. Yeah. And, and then based on your rank, uh, determined, you know, whether you got to, um, you didn't have to get all bashful when you said choice. you were at the top of your class. You got kind of all bashful. No, no, no. I, I, it was I, I was I was a good cadet. I I I, I, um, I was a regimental commander. I had one of the top five leadership positions at West Point. That was pretty cool. So I got to live the full full experience. So I chose uh, field artillery. I wanted to go combat arms. Uh, different army back then. Different yeah. experience. Yeah. Pre nine eleven, we're you know I nine eleven pre Gulf War pre Gulf War <laughs> I, I, pre Gulf War. I, I lived, um, I, you know, I lived the end of the Cold War, and that was my experience. So field artillery officer uh, did my time at Fort Sill. My officer basic training went to Ranger School. Kind of wanted to make sure I did the full range and once again lean into the challenge so not many artillery slots available for ranger school so i had to compete with all my other uh, with all the other artillery officers to get one of the coveted slots to go to ranger school so i managed to get a a slot there and and uh and went to and came to georgia uh and had some of my toughest days here in this great state that started uh at Camp Derby and mm-hmm. Camp Darby and, and, and went through Dahlonega yep. and the mountain phase of Ranger School and it was in February and March so I was went to oh I went God. to I went to Winter Ranger School and, and it was the toughest sixty days of my life I mean it was one of those that you just takes you to places that you never even thought you could go and that and that's been another sort of unexpected advantage and the way I, I like to articulate what Ranger School has has given to me. You know, as a as a civilian now and as a CEO is is I feel like I've got an extra gear, um, an extra gear because I've gone to a place having to had pushed myself mentally and physically through not eating, through not sleeping, through just constant duress and stress. Um, it takes you to places that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the population never ever ever go. So knowing that I've been there and I I made it through and was able to push. One step at a time, because then at some points it was it was literally one boot in front of the other. When mm-hmm. every fiber of your being said, "I want to quit. I, I want to stop doing what I'm doing because this is insane," um, but you get through it, and it gives you a, a level of strength and, and a gear that has served me really, really well. That's interesting because uh, we'll step a, away from the, your career path here, but you bring up an interesting point. When you get in the civilian world and you have that gear, I mean, people know you're in the military or know you came from a military background, but they don't understand that. Military people understand it. You know, you wear that tab and people see it and they go, okay, yeah, that, 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 that guy, that gal, they're squared away. They, they have their stuff together and, and that's somebody who obviously is going to push me to, to go to certain limits. But I don't think civilians get that whole concept. And so they don't. They don't. When they see you constantly being the first one at a meeting or constantly being the first one through the door and the last one to leave every, and you know, they just look at you and go, what the, God, that guy's crazy. Like it's unreal. I don't know. Do you notice that people notice you differently because of that? They notice and they appreciate it. And kind of the lead by example, the lead follower, get the hell out of the way kind of, kind of mantra that is, 
uh, ingrained in in kind of a ranger esprit. Uh, they, they notice it. They notice it in bearing. They notice how you comport yourself. They do notice when you're that you're that you're first in and last out. And so those little things. And I, you know, those things get ingrained in you. Um, when we do it in a corporate setting, we have lunch. I eat last. It's just because I. Put the, the troops go first, and that's not typical. Generally, the leaders the leaders <laughs> jump to the front of the line. Generally, you get handled uh, too much as you get as you move up the corporate yeah. ladder. You get you, you sometimes get spoiled, and I avoid that stuff like the plague because those little steps where suddenly your handlers are doing things for you, or opening doors for you, or setting your plate for you. Uh, it removes you from the experience of the people that you lead. And the bigger the distance that you've got between your experience and the experience of the people that ultimately you lead, in that gap, in that distance, for me, has, has always defined risk. And, um, and I try to avoid that like the plague and keep the feet planted firmly on the ground. Remember that, it's, um, that as a leader, uh, you're a servant. You're a servant to the organization. They come first, and my job is to make them successful. And if I can make those people successful, my people successful, my success will be a byproduct of that. We have somehow in the civilian world, we've created uh, uh, rock star CEOs where they're bigger, better, bolder, smarter, faster than everybody else. And that is just flat out not true. They might preside over a period of success in the, in the organization, but that period of success, and we want to attribute that all to them. No, uh, attribute it to the people that they serve. But sometimes we forget and we, we lavish them with, with perks and handling and compensation. And all those things tend to do is isolate people in key leadership positions from the people that they lead. And again, that leads to risk. Well, I think it's you know, lucid and perfectly said because as we record this on December 1st, you know, we hear in the news of What's going on with all these men in power and how they abuse it and how they take advantage of it? And it's that distance that you talk about that they've created from everybody that allows them to think that, well, you know, someone's setting my table, someone's opening my door, someone's grabbing my car, someone's picking up my laundry, that people are just at your beck and call. And, and that distance that you've created, and it, it, it takes, it removes humility. And I think when you put on a uniform, and we talk about this a lot, you know, combat humbles us all. I mean, we're all the same. The bullet goes through my chest the way it does everybody else's. It doesn't matter what you have done through, whether you wear a Ranger tab, SF tab, or whatever. So it, we all understand that, and that is missing from the civilian world. And I think really that is something that, uh, you know, when, when we see what happens in the civilian world and the abuses of power and things of that nature, that's why it's so much harder to deal with when the abuses of power happen in our organization. Yeah, I, Because I, we don't expect it. I had a lesson. I got it early. It stuck with me. I can remember it as clearly as if it happened yesterday. My first job out of the, out of the Army, I was an assistant to the, the, the head of a, a big division in, in, in Germany for a company that I, I left very quickly. I had a short, short stay there because of what I saw. So the managing director uh, comes in from, from Switzerland uh, and in our building, in the lobby, there were two elevators. And when he was in town, he forbade anyone from using that one elevator. Uh, so all the other associates in the building in this 10-story building had to, had to crowd into the one elevator because he didn't want to make any, any of the interim stops. He didn't want to be inconvenient. So that was off limits when wow. managing director. And I thought, <laughs> I thought, holy mackerel, what thought process goes on inside of a leader's head to say that I am too busy, too important to take a 
elevator ride up a couple of floors with some of the people that I'm responsible for, where I might have to talk to them. I might have to smile and say hello to them, and I might be able to share a moment of, of experience together. If you, if you have isolated yourself to that point, then you, <laughs> you have lost all perspective. So yeah. that, that was an immediate lesson that I got, and I tucked it in my in my leadership kit, I mean, I carry a kit with me like, like you do, and, and you learn lessons, positive and negative, from the examples and the role models that you confront. And that was one of the, that was one of the examples that has uh, stayed with me. And, I, and I've promised myself, uh, you know, as you move through um, and up the, up the corporate ladder, to keep the, the ego intact, to keep the humility intact, to understand that I am no better than anybody else. Uh, I, I, and, and actually, um, I have a bigger responsibility because now I get to take care of, create the conditions, create the culture, create, help influence the value system within organization. Uh, that's really, really critical, important stuff. And you cannot do it effectively if you have isolated yourself from the people that you lead, right? Beautiful. Perfectly said. All right, let's get back to, you finish Ranger School. You end up in Germany with your first assignment. What are you doing? What year is it? Uh, kind of give me the background. Uh, 1987. I'm, I'm on, on my way to Bindlock, Germany, uh, 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment as an artillery officer in a, in a CAV squadron. There were two CAV squadrons that were, uh, that were positioned in Germany, the 11th ACR, the Black Horse Regiment, and the 2nd ACR, Toujours Prey. Um, I was, they were both this combined arms group that were designed to that were positioned in the high speed avenues of approach from east into west. So again, we were fighting the Cold War. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, you know, this is we haven't had anybody really talk about the Cold War on the podcast. And I'm wondering when you say you get to Germany, and I'm thinking the Berlin Wall falls in '89, right? And so you are there at kind of near. I don't want to say the height of the tension, but it's it's a tense environment, right? But as we got there in 1987, there wasn't an inkling that the wall would be coming down. Right, that, okay. That happened so quickly that it's almost uh, amazing that it happened, number one, peacefully. But to, to see 40 years, the tectonic plates of 40 years of, of the Cold War shift as quickly as they did, and to have been... Um, you know, there right on the front lines of that experience was was really neat and unique and memorable. So our our job um, was to patrol a sector of the East German Czechoslovakian border as we fought the general defense plan, the you know the Cold War plan, which essentially was back then um, trade space for time. Um, everything was about. Just if there was to be an attack from Russia or East Germany or Czechoslovakia, you have to just slow that until the army and our military can mobilize from the United States over to Germany. So essentially, our, our mission was to stop the slow the the advance, mm -hmm. fall back, fall back, trade space uh, space for time. That time to allow the forces from the United States. So that was the, that was the general defense plan and when you kind of look at it uh we we gave the, the east and russia uh maybe more credit than they were due uh, you know because i spent some time after the military in some of those barracks throughout east germany mm -hmm. looking at the kind of conditions that they were in so this was not the same kind of military and obviously a lot of that was validated when right. we went when we went head-on against those systems uh in the first gulf war so 
again, my, that was my period. I did not see combat. I was there for the, that moment in time when suddenly uprisings in Czechoslovakia spread to East Germany. And that started in 88 and went into 89 and all of a sudden the wall's coming down, which was a really unique, euphoric moment. But for a border patrol, um, when change happens, suddenly everything's on on alert, right? So we're on high alert because who who knows how this is going to play out. It played out beautifully, but you didn't know. So our, our entire group was on alert, patrolling the border watching as the situation developed. And, and then fortunately, the governments came together and legal crossings, legal passages were established across the East German Czechoslovakian border. And then it changed from tense environment to almost celebratory environment. And to be to be again on the front of that as families and and friends were reunited and a country was, was reunited. I, I, I remember clearly as, as I was patrolling the border, there was, there was a five or six hour line of, of, of Trabants. Those were the, those tiny little cars that looked like something okay. that cut yeah. out of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. That was the only car available uh, uh, in, in East Germany at the time. And they lined up for hours and hours to get across to spend a little time in the in the in the West, just to come across where the wall section came down. That, that's exactly right. Wow. And, and interestingly, um, the, the West German government uh, gave a hundred German marks. It was almost it was called welcome money, Begrüßungsgeld, uh, in in Germany to say welcome uh, to almost note this historic moment. So each each citizen from East Germany came across, got a hundred marks that was burning a hole in their pockets. And there was a lot of pent up demand after 40 years of communism. (laughs) So our town in Bayreuth for the period of six weeks was invaded. Those Trabants, those little cars were parked everywhere on sidewalks. Uh, And they came in with their money and they bought up every bar of chocolate, every orange, every banana, you know, all the things that were not available to them for so many years. And, and we heard some carping and complaining from citizens of the West Germans that, uh, but, but for the most part, it was, wow, this is historic. This is unbelievable. And to see this reunification up close and personal, really cool. You know, when you talk about patrolling a wall and uh, forgive the, the, the lack of kind of uh, perception here of this whole thing, but, you know, you just get this vision that you're walking along this brick wall and, I mean, you're wondering what's on the other side of it. I mean, is you know, I feel like I'm talking to like Jack Nicholson, a few good men, and there's you know, four thousand Cubans on the other side trying to kill me because there's a wall there. Like, is that what's that mentally like day in and day out? Do you get complacent? I mean, do do you wonder what's on the other side? Does anybody want to go over and take a peek? Oh, a huge. Um we were absolutely fascinated and trying to imagine what was going on on the other side of that wall because honestly, it felt like you were you were looking through a a, a looking glass, but inverted. I'm, it's, it's almost like I was looking back through time because the factories, the state of infrastructure, the cars, it looked like technology from the 1950s. And here we are in the 1980s with, with modern cars and Mercedes-Benz and BMWs and Audis and, and a level of technology that people were living with uh, that was so far distant from the experience that you were looking at just across the border. And that border was was um, was a wall, and then it was concertina wire, and then it was minefield. It was an interesting, you know, it was obviously, it was real. And with, with guard towers, um, that was part of the wall, but one, one town in, 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 our, in our sector, uh, I, I think the town was Mudlerite, um, 
the town was literally bisected uh, by the center of the town the wall came through almost like Berlin so think of it as a mini Berlin but we heard stories of families whose parents or uncles went to work that day who happened to be in the east part of the city wall comes up and those those families were then separated for a generation and uh, so it really it was really very real uh, in in that little town where you got the sense that wow this this was just something that that came up, it came up as fast as it did, and it and it cut a swath across Germany, and it cut a swath across families and lives and connections. Uh, it, it it was something. You said it happened very quickly. Did, was it like a single day that it all happened in, or a couple of days? Can you kind of recount what you remember until it was the a period wall of, actually came down? Yeah, you know, it was a period of months where okay. tensions. You remember the the famous uh, Mr. Gorbachev tear? Yeah, down I was this young wall. at this point in time, Steve. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you look great for your age, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not quoting ancient history. No, here. I know, no, but I, I just I was I, I remember Mr. Gorbachev tear down that wall from Reagan, but because it was a huge news event. Yeah, but I was I was under ten years old at the time. I mean, but the the students in Czechoslovakia and Germany they sensed an opening, an opportunity where um, the government wasn't going to crack down in, you know, in Tiananmen Square like fashion, right. like like we've seen another history lesson, also mm-hmm. the 80s. Sorry. Yes. Uh, okay. All right. Good. <laughs> I have read history uh, right, books. All right. I just, you know. Okay, good. Um, but uh, I think there was this this sense of, of, of a moment and, and the students started to protest and those protests weren't brutally quelled and then they started to spread and they spread from Czechoslovakia so it was a period of months but uh, which you know seemed like it went by really really quickly but think of it as a six-month period so it wasn't overnight but to have it end so quickly and and the and the defense the defense plans that we had and the training that we did and when i arrived there in 1987 there was not a whisper or a hint that this was even a possibility i i feel i felt like all of us just believed that this cold war would go on forever Forever, and this would be a part of our of of our uh of our experience uh, and to see it evaporate uh in, in six months, in, 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 you know, relative to the forty-plus years of status quo, is is a blink of an eye, sure, right? Yeah, so it did yeah. it did really happen fast. So after the Berlin Wall falls, you know, what happens next for you from a military standpoint? Do you stay in Germany or stayed in Germany? Uh, came to the end of my deployment. Uh, started. Uh, it was a time where the army went through a major reduction in force. So we were way, there were way too many lieutenants and captains, and and I, I looked at my experience, and and as as great and as meaningful as it was, uh, I said, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna transition. So I I I've, I decided to get out in 1990 91, um, and that was right right at the time. I mean, I missed the Gulf Gulf War one. By a matter of weeks, so that the unit that I was in, the second ACR, um, and the lieutenants and the soldiers that I trained with, I, I, I left, and and sure enough, they were the they were the front end of the big of the big hook, right? Uh, uh, under General Schwarzkopf, yep. that that was the um, that was the that defined the Gulf War, that big movement. While the second ACR and my Howe battery 
were all part of that conflict. So it was, um, so I missed that. Did that bother you? It, a little bit. You know, I, that, I, th I think all of that still bothers me a little bit. Um, and maybe that's why I'm driven to serve post, post uniform as, as much as I am. Um, when I was in the army, a combat patch was a rare thing. Yeah. You hardly, you hardly saw them and we revered them. These were the Vietnam vets or, uh, or, you know, Korean war, but those were folks that are on yeah, their way out. Right. But, but there were not many patches on the, uh, on that shoulder, um, that, that indicated I'd had combat experience. And it, so it was a rare thing. Um, now it's the, you, you won't find a soldier that hasn't. Well, strangely, you mentioned that it, it's starting to come back around because I walk through my ranks now and it, most E5s and below are not wearing them now. Really? It's it, well, because I mean, think about what's happened after what are we on 16 years of combat now, 16 years of war. We're going on 17. Uh, you know, everybody who for a while there, yes, everybody had one. If you didn't have one, it was you kind of you were kind of a black sheep. Like, how, right. do, how do you how did you avoid all this? You know, I've been multiple times and you've been at a desk and so. But what's happened is since the shutdown of Iraq in 2011 and, you know, forces being smaller in Afghanistan and less deployments overall, that we've just gone through this cycle because everyone who had it now got out. If they didn't get injured and got out medically, you know, they just got out because it, it was enough. I did four and five. I don't need this anymore. You know, they, they move on and the, the forces naturally transition. And then, of course, again, um, through the previous presidential administration, not making any political commentary, but they downsized the active force and downsized the, the, the reserves as well. And so... There is a fresh component of people, and I would say about 50%, if not more than 50% of the ranks now in my command wow. are not wearing a combat. All the senior folks are. Yeah. You know, all of your senior non-commissioned officers and all of your, your most, all of your majors and above, some of your captains are. Um, but beyond that, they're next to zero lieutenants and lower enlisted who have combat patches. Here's what I see, and this is why I feel so driven to, to serve and to help in any way that I can. Uh, we have downsized the army. We've downsized it to the point where uh, the the missions that we're asking our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines to do uh, are are greater than the actual force. It's a math and problem. It's a math problem, and we don't have enough boots on the ground to solve the math problem appropriately. So what's happening is that we're asking our soldiers to to deploy not once, not twice, four, five, six, seven times. I, we we have out at training camp uh, military appreciation day, and we do a lot with the military. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that sure. when we get a chance. Chance. But uh, but but I always ask when I talk to soldiers about how many times they've been deployed, and the numbers were for me were, were just staggering. So we're asking four, five, six deployments. That's five years plus of a soldier in a combat situation, away from their friends, their country, their family, their loved ones, um, out doing what we ask them to do. Then we send them back. They get a little period, and then they've got to train. They they almost go back into garrison mode and then preparation mode for whatever that next deployment is so there's this operational tempo that we've been that we've been conducting for the last 16 years that has been grinding up our 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 military to the point where we have to say stop we either we either reduce the missions that we're expecting them to do, and that's that's not realistic because nope. the world doesn't feel any less dangerous. In fact, <laughs> it feels more dangerous than the it ever. The threats keep coming. They keep coming, and they keep coming from different directions. And we, as a as the military, are, are obligated to face those threats. But we need to face those threats with the adequate resource. And you can't ask, you know, you can't um, keep on expecting um, to get. Uh, 
more out of an army than it's designed to de- to deliver. And at some point, I've, I really believe that's why the separations are occurring. And uh, we've got to do some long, hard thinking about the missions that we've got. And even if that means spending more money, uh, which it's going to mean that, in order to support those folks, we're going to have to do it as a country. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, without getting into a political dissertation here, there's also a, a sense of Sometimes military leaders need to learn to say no, like, hey, we're not ready for this right now. I understand what you want to do when, you know, when threats happen, they happen, but there is reaction and there's overreaction and then there's, you know, state of readiness and all those things that you you put in the pot and you try to figure out what it is. But, um, you know, some of our senior leaders need to, to, to tell political folks that we need, need to kind of a reset. We need, we need to kind of recharge our batteries here for a little bit. So whatever you can do to take stuff off our plate, that would be great because that would benefit us in the long run. Let us get rearmed, refit, restrengthen everything else and, and, and come back a better force. Because as you said, you know, we've been at this for so long right now. It's almost like our tank never gets back to full. You only get to about 75% and it just starts lowering back down again. It's, it's a tough spot. So given that dynamic that's played out over the last 16 years, I mean, here's, here's what, what I feel. We've, we are now at war for 16 years. And if you think about it, the longest period, that's the longest that we've ever as a nation been in continuous in 250 combat. Years, so we have yeah. done some, we're on, we're in uncharted territory and the consequences to, to our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in terms of the impacts on their lives and on their psyches and on their bodies and their souls is, is profound. It's generational in its impact. So think of the long tail consequences of what, of what we're going through. We're going to, this is generational. We're going to be living with the consequences of this for 30 or 40 plus years. And, and I really do believe that if we if we send our soldiers into harm's way, we better find a way to take care of them on the way back. And, and that's, that's kind of the space that I'm, that I'm trying to, uh, to help, to occupy, to provide leadership for um, in, in a couple different ways. I, I want to get to this. So let's bring us back to where yeah. it is when you get off active duty, you start to transition into the civilian world. What are you going to do? Do you know what you want to do? How does this all come about? I needed to get a job. I had, <laughs> I had, a, I had a son and I had a wife and I needed a paycheck. Um, so for me, it was about, it was about getting out, doing interviews. I wish I could say I, I had a perfect vision of what I wanted to do, but I, I went out, I, I cast a wide net and the, the best and neatest opportunity was to be the chief of staff to this president and CEO for Mercedes-Benz of, of North America. And that was the job that I took, a pretty cool job. Uh, and ironically, I, I went to sign my papers to out process out of the army at a place called Kelly Barracks in Stuttgart, Germany, and drove right past the, the shiny global headquarters for Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> and, who, and who knew that three months later, after I'd gotten back to the States and gone through my job search process that I ended up working for that. that How did you find the job? Did a recruiter help you? I mean, that's not easy. It was a recruiter. So um, a a recruiter uh, that worked with Academy graduates. And it just so happened that in our HR, in the HR department at Mercedes-Benz of North America was a a Naval Academy grad. Ah. And he saw the West Point experience and the CEO, uh, a a wonderful German fellow named Eric Krumpe. He loved the he loved the military background, the West Point background, the leadership. Um, I, I spoke German, so I, I, I spent my time while I was over there uh, and, and applied myself so that I could come back with something other than, um, you, you know, s- s- tall stories. So I, I learned the language. So I, I so I understood the culture and the language. He said, you don't know the car business. That's OK with me. I'll teach you that. Um, and uh, I started with uh, uh, with Mercedes Benz. OK, so not a bad company to start for. And I'm 
sure that the uh, the, the fringe Benz, you had to drive a Benz after the fact to work every day, right? Did he, yeah. did you get one? Tried it. I, I yeah, I, I traded in a Humvee for a for a Mercedes Benz, which <laughs> Not was a, a bad deal. which was a nice trade. <laughs> Not a bad upgrade. <laughs> I kept pitching myself, thinking, wow, what, like is this my experience? But, now, uh, when you start working for a CEO, it's got to be you know an awesome experience. But did you ever start to think that, hey? I want to be a CEO. Like, is that where it comes from? I, I said to myself, wow, I, I want to be that. Um, and, and just because you, you always set out a big challenge, right? Sure. Here I am working for the CEO and it was a, um, a great and challenging job. The neat part about the job as my very first civilian job uh, uh, is that I got a I got a global perspective. I got a CEO perspective. He used me as his eyes and ears. And when he when he needed uh, information or analysis on a on, on a project or a part of the company, he'd send me out there. So in the couple of years that I served as as his chief of staff, uh, I I feel like I got five or six or seven years of experience because I got to see the the macro of the enterprise as opposed to had I just joined in some department and then I would have seen the world from. From the from that department level, I got a very unique experience right at the outset, which has been in, invaluable for me. So now you move through the ranks at at Mercedes Benz. What's next for you there at the company? The the neat thing is, I came to a pretty cool crossroads. Uh, he, the the guy that hired me got promoted uh, to be part of the board of management over in Germany, head of global sales and marketing for all of Mercedes Benz Daimler uh, worldwide, and he said, "Why don't you come with me?" Uh, and I had just gotten back a couple years back in the States, comfortable, kind of found my rhythm. And it was this moment of truth where I thought, wow, should I stay where I am and continue uh, building on what I've done here in the United States or do I take this giant leap of faith, go back to Germany where uh, it was going to be 100% German. Now, my German at that point was was pretty good, but suddenly I'm in meetings all day long and talking about manufacturing and development and transmissions and technical terms that that I had no idea about all day long, German. So it represented a massive move out of my comfort zone. And that's been another one of my lessons that I that I tell my kids and everybody who listen to me is that when those opportunities to stretch you where you feel like I've got an opportunity to stay where I am or jump out into the unknown, into that sort of zone of discomfort, make those moves because I really sure. do believe that's where growth happens. Growth does not happen when you're comfortable. Uh, growth happens when you're uncomfortable. And that was a really uncomfortable move, but it ended up being, if I could point to that one decision I made in my whole career, uh, that, that decision to go to Germany set up a trajectory that, uh, that, that leads me to where I am today. And had I not done that, had I stayed in my comfort zone, who, who knows, but um, great things happened after that. Okay, so how do you ultimately end up here at the Arthur Blank Family Foundation? So n- neat thing, I'm over in Germany. The Germany decides for the very first time to, uh, to build a manufacturing plant a- outside of Germany. They decided for the United States, and there I am, the lone American who spoke German, uh, who was right there at a moment that, where they decided to go back to the United States. So I'm employee one, American number one, in a small skunk works team designed to be the first to build a manufacturing plant. I was part of the team that selected Alabama uh, and Birmingham as the as the manufacturing location for what would be ultimately now 
a $10 billion investment. It was back wow. then $2 billion investment for a, for a manufacturing plant. So I got, I got connected to a project that was incredible in its scope. Uh, the amount of experience that I got from, from development to manufacturing to marketing uh, were all things, invaluable experiences that I got over that five, six year period. But again, never would have happened had I not been that lone American on the spot when the board decided to, to, to move to the United States. And it all came from that decision to jump out of the comfort zone and, and move back over to Stuttgart. So it was, um, it was a great moment. So I, I, I did that. Um, that's not long. Left, launched the very first product uh, from made, it, made in America. It was, the, it was the M Class, made North American Truck of the Year in 1990. It's like an extra baby for you. It was. It's like a child. It, it was. I got to live it from, <laughs> I got to live something from first design drawing to first product rolling off the off the assembly line it was a it was a neat neat project to see something all the way through and and then I thought well how do you top this like what what's next uh took a took a job in our in our financial services group um and that's when the Daimler merger took place Daimler Chrysler merger Mm -hmm. and 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 that was a moment where I left the company uh didn't like the leadership. I saw some things that that from from a leadership standpoint, I said, wow. Second time in your career you've had this epiphany. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, really negative experience. I saw, I said to myself, if that's what senior leadership represents, I can't be part of this company. So I left the company um, and I went out into... Uh, to a big ad agency in, in, in Dallas, Texas called the Richards group, Stan Richards, an incredible guy, learned an amazing amount. He's in the, he's in the advertising hall of fame, learned a bunch of things that, that played into my marketing background. So I learned a lot there. Um, fast forward, uh, the, the merger failed. It was a spectacular failure. Uh, they demerged and it went back to you know, Chrysler went their way. Mercedes Benz went the other way. And there was a chief marketing officer job open uh, at, at Mercedes-Benz in, in the United States. So I, um, I sent, uh, Welcome back. <laughs> I, I, made a, I made a call and an interesting call because I, I reached out to the, to, the, the, to the then CEO and said, uh, hey, Ernst, uh, we knew each other a little bit, but not much. I said, I, I, I'm the perfect guy for this job and here's why. So I sent that, that letter. It, it got pushed out to... Um, to human resources, and I got a polite rejection letter back, which was interesting, right? I had a, I, that was another wow. epiphany <laughs> moment, right? Here, here I got this rejection letter. Yes, we're going another way, and we've hired a, we've hired a recruiter, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, I had a moment where I could have just said, well, to heck with them. Uh, they, they don't know what they're missing. But I, but I overcame my ego, and I said, I'm not going to let that be the final word. So I called a number of people in who I still knew and had contact with at sure. Mercedes-Benz. And I said, uh, I want you to call this guy and tell him about my background and who I am and the kind of guy that I am. And um, in the hopes that he'd take a meeting. And I knew, look, if, if I get a meeting uh, and, and then I still get the rejection, then I'm fine. At least I've had the opportunity to, to tell my story, to make my case, but to get an email of rejection before I've had that opportunity was unacceptable. So I, 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 got, the, I got the meeting and I got the job a week later, which, which was another one of those wonderful informative moments. And I've got that rejection letter framed you know, that I keep with me. And, and I tell that to my kids, if you don't get the right answer, um, it doesn't mean it's the, it doesn't mean it's the final answer. And, uh, so I pushed through that, got the, 
got the CMO job, uh, did a pretty good job there, and, and then got the opportunity to be the CEO, and, uh, and, and, and that led to where I am today. So does Arthur Blank himself give you a phone call and say, hey, I'd like you to come work for me? No, again, serendipity, uh, you know, and, and chance plays a role in every corporate trajectory. And that's why I, 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 I stay humble because, you, you know, it, luck has to happen. Fortune has to come, to come together. Of course, you've got to put yourself in, in the right opportunities. Um, but but a, an opportunity came up. I moved, the, I moved the headquarters together with our leadership team. We made a big, bold decision to say that... Uh, that New Jersey was was our home for 50 years, but maybe that's not the the right place to set up our next chapter for success for Mercedes Benz in the United States. So we made the decision to relocate the corporate headquarters uh, down to Georgia. Uh, that was quite a project and quite a process and, and an exciting move that I was thrilled to be a part of. Um, and, and during that time, met Arthur Blank. Uh, uh, Obviously, he's a leading citizen here. Sure, yeah. He was one of the first. We were Company X looking at Atlanta, uh, and, and the economic development group paraded out Arthur to talk to us. He didn't oh, know wow. didn't know what company we were from uh, because at that point it was confidential, and we had a four or five uh, sort of finalists that we were visiting other cities around the country that were candidates for our headquarters location. So Arthur shows up in jeans and a sport coat and, and just casually talks about Atlanta and Home Depot and the experience. And so that was a really neat moment. Um, and and where I, that was my first meeting with Arthur, uh, met him several other times, uh, fast forward, uh, our, our head of marketing, uh, found that they were looking for a naming rights partner, and that fit perfectly into the wheelhouse of what Mercedes-Benz wanted to do. We wanted to be a central figure in in Atlanta. We didn't want to just be in a corporate park on the outskirts. And so this uh, this amazing, iconic, design-driven building in the heart of Atlanta felt right in the wheelhouse of what Mercedes-Benz was trying to accomplish in relocating its headquarters. So the timing was absolutely perfect. but. I never would have found out that Arthur Blank was looking for a CEO had I not had a, a catch-up dinner with a West Point classmate of mine. I'm in Connecticut. We're with our wives. And this was just a, a friend who, um, who I hadn't caught up with. And he was good friends with the vice chairman of Corn Ferry who Arthur had retained to find his CEO. And it's not like CEO searches like this are public. I never would have found out about it. Right. And it would have quietly happened in the background until I would have found out that there was a, 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 a brand new CEO for the very first time for Arthur Blank's uh, portfolio of businesses. But for that dinner, I found out about it. He described the portfolio, which I wasn't even fully aware of, which is a PGA Tour Superstores, and it's the stadium, and it's the Atlanta United soccer franchise, and it's the Falcons, and it's a it's a luxury guest ranch out in Montana called Mountain Sky. So as we talked over dinner, I, I started thinking, wow, what a neat opportunity. And I slept on it, and I called my West Point buddy the next day, and I said, hey, why don't you give me the phone number of that Corn Ferry guy? <laughs> so that, um, that dinner led to a phone call, which led to a bunch of meetings, which led to me ultimately getting the opportunity of a lifetime to work for one of the most successful and, and iconic entrepreneurs uh, in all of the United States. He built the second largest retailer on the planet, and he built it on a set of core values. And, and so to, to have... Um, to come to work for somebody like Arthur, who is as values driven 
as, as he is, because that's what motivates me. That's yep. who I am as a leader. That's the school of leadership that I went to, servant leadership. We found a a 100% fit from a value system standpoint, from a culture, from a chemistry standpoint. Um, and, and that's what Arthur was looking for in, in a CEO. He said, look, I, I can look at your resume and, and, and I'm looking at, I know you've accomplished a bunch of things or you wouldn't be in the room with me. For me, it's about, it's about who you are and how you get things done as opposed to what you've accomplished. And after many, many meetings, in fact, lots of chemistry fits where I'd go off for lunch or dinner with Arthur. Uh, finally, he, uh, he made an offer, and now I'm two years into this new journey, which has been incredible. Is CEO the most impressive title that you've held outside of officer in the Army? I mean, Dad, do they compare? No, Dad. Dad? Okay. Look, I, 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 for me, it's all about balance in life, and, sure. and, and I, would never, I would never offer uh, everything at the altar of professional success. So for me, it's really, really important to keep a balance um, to who I am, to my wife, to my kids. I've got nine children, and I've seen plenty of examples. That's a of, fire team plus. It, it, it's it a is a small it, squad it, you have. It, it's actually a full baseball team. <laughs> it's a full baseball team. I can't go five on five yet, but, but but I'm not planning to add to that number. But think think about that. Not, you know, nine kids and the awesome responsibility that 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 represents. And and I've seen plenty of examples of, of leaders who you know CEOs or, or corporate folks that have kind of given everything to the company and they've lost their relationship and to their to their family to their friends and you'd call them a success but but I wouldn't call them a success so for me success, success means you know doing doing the right thing giving back being part of a community being part of a family having great set of friends all of those things matter to me and yes commercial success because I'm a competitive guy and I want to and I want to win too but not at, at all costs I'm not willing to sacrifice all of these other important things at the altar of commercial success I do want to hit on one thing it's a good point to transition you talk about you know family and service and all the other stuff you are actually also uh, on the executive directors of the Johnny Mac Foundation which which is an incredible foundation and, and you know we have so many veterans organizations out there I always tell people do your research do your homework find out which company aligns with the values and the things that you want to do and I can tell you succinctly that this organization is at the top of the list of organizations that people want to donate. But tell us about the, the Johnny Mac Fund. Amazing journey. 2010, uh, John McHugh, my classmate at West Point, he was the next company over from me. He was in D4, I was in C4. Uh, captain of our soccer team and just the just just one of the best people that you could that you could know. Always had a smile on his face. Everything was positive. He's the kind, the, the kind of guy that lifted you up just by being associated, being near him. What a, what, just a wonderful guy. 2010, full colonel. He was in aviation, spent his lifetime serving his country. Um, he was killed by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan in, in, in 2010. That was a gut punch to, to, to his classmates, to all of us. Uh, and a small group started to take care of his family. He left behind a wife and five beautiful children. He was a really God-centered, Christian family guy um, that family meant everything for him. So we started to take care of, of his five children, golf fundraiser, um, personal contributions, just to make sure that those kids wouldn't, get, wouldn't fall through the cracks and we'd take care of them. That, uh, that evolved, and, and, and I remember this, I sat, sat down with a classmate of mine named Tony Guzzi. He's the C CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We're at breakfast at a diner over up, up, in, Stamp, up in Connecticut, and, and, and we said, well, we've done a pretty good job. We've raised enough money. We've taken care of the kids, but 
the universe is so much larger. There's so many other kids besides those five kids that, right. that belong to Johnny yeah. Mac that are in similar circumstances. The need is great. This is a generational thing and we need to we need to get off the sidelines and we need to lead. So it was a, it was one of those moments that we said we're going to step up and that conversation turned into his agents, his his law firm did the legal work pro bono to incorporate our 501c3. My ad agency, Merkley and Partners for, for Mercedes-Benz, did all the branding work, all the CRM work uh, to, to do that. So we cobbled together with donated resources enough to get this brand launched. We launched it at a, at a fundraiser in Houston, raised $1.4 million wow. on our very first event. We had the chief of staff of the Army as our, as our keynote speaker, Ray Odierno. That was our first event. Uh, fast forward three and a half years in, we've raised more than $10 million. We've taken care of 700 kids. We provide college scholarships for children of the fallen. So for those families that have, have ultimately, they've made the ultimate sacrifice, they've lost a hero, a father, a mother, a loved one in service to the country, uh, we feel like a deep obligation to take care of those kids. And what better way to take care of them than providing education? Because higher education is the best predictor of, of, of life success that we have. So our mission is to provide education scholarships for those kids. And we're now, we're now three and a half years in, $10, $10 million in, 700 scholarships in, and what an incredible journey that it has been. It has united our class. So the class of 1986 um, has been the driving force, but we've but but it's gotten so much bigger than that, and it brings us together in service to those who serve, and it's 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 almost like we have a mini reunion at every single event. It's great. And, and we're in business together. So I've gone into business with my classmates and that business is bringing funding uh, to kids that need scholarships. It's, it's the most rewarding work that I've done in my lifetime. And it's now opened up doors and connected me with people that I never would have connected with. So it's one of those things that that moment to just jump off the sidelines, get into action, um, has turned into something that is wonderful, unique, and we believe is just making a difference. Well, Steve, from West Point to the fall of the Berlin Wall to the top of Mercedes-Benz and now with the NFL, MLS, and Arthur Blank and everything you have going on with Johnny Mack, I mean, your story is just one that... Uh, you know, embodies exactly what we want to showcase on the podcast that they're not only is it a military service thing, but it's beyond what everybody's doing in post-military service. And your story is a testament just to the great things that, that veterans are doing out there. And we just we appreciate you being on the podcast so much. Yeah, it's it's fun. There's so much more to do. That's what motivates me. Uh, we're, you know, if 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 we're ten million dollars in, the need is. Uh, if you, I feel like I've put a bucket, I've pulled a bucket out of the ocean, but there's an ocean of needs still out there. So that motivates me, and the, and the fact that I get to work inside of an organization where giving back is is part of the DNA of the culture and value system of the company. So the, the time that I spend on Johnny Mac, and I, I serve on the Taps board. TAPS Tragedy Assistance mm -hmm. Program for Survivors um, is 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 not only encouraged um, by Arthur and the team. It's it's uh, it's almost expected. It's part of who we are. So thrilled to be sharing my story and 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 I hope uh, if in any way it motivates anybody else to get out of the comfort zone and and and, and get in the game for us. There's work to be done. Steve Cannon, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right, appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. 
If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.